and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he asks the real hard-hitting questions, like, why is the new King Darien card not a creature-type noble? It's Matt Morgan. So I learned why the French and the German can't ever eat watermelon together. It's because they're always fighting over the rind. <laughs> Yeah, I, we're I, back to ge- we're back to the geography jokes, and I, I realize some people just get lost on those. <laughs> uh, yeah, can't tell up from down. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. Uh, speaking of which, up next, he really likes the new card Urborg Lurgoyf because Gersbumps are his fervorite books. It's Dana Roach. <laughs> uh, just the other day, my boss asked me if I did a good job performing under pressure, and I didn't really know how to answer that. I basically only know the guitar chords, so we will rock you. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was like, dum, 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 da, da, da. like yeah, that was, I'm glad that we're I mean, w- once you Once you start playing that opening lick, just tell them, well, don't stop me now. <laughs> That's so good. I love that. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data just a little bit more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? Uh, today, we're talking about the brewing differences between when your commander is part of your next win condition or not part of your next win condition? Yes, yes, we are. And this is kind of a, I, I'm intrigued to see where this discussion goes. I'm not sure where this discussion is going to go, but it is an interesting facet of some decks when the commander is or is not the way the deck wins. And that does affect deck building. So it should be pretty interesting to get into. But real quick, before we get into that main topic, we've got a couple of quick shout outs to do. First, we would like to thank Chase, also known as Mana Curves, for their work on editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at Mana Curves. And you can support the show directly. You can like and subscribe on YouTube or any of your local podcasting applications that you have on your phones. Or you can go to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to join the Discord community that we have, you want to see all of our historic challenge stats picks. There's all that and more over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, including that patron tier where we give somebody a shout out just for supporting us, just for joining over at that website. And this week, we are giving a very special shout out to Sebastian Albrich. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Um, I wanted to say Bastion because I watched The NeverEnding Story lately, but <laughs> Sebastian, there you are. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, that's awesome. And wonderful. Thank you so much, Sebastian. The, the, all of our patron support, it means the absolute world to us. And Matt, wow, The NeverEnding Story. That's a throwback that I, didn't, I did not expect today. I'm, 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 I'm into that. It, it's just a classic. Everybody should rewatch it every now and then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly, though, I have noticed it does end. Kind of a kind of a strange thing about that movie. Twice, like, even. <laughs> there you go, Joey. You were just telling us before the show that you don't like it when a TV show lies to you. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, and I, I guess, but that movie gets a pass. Okay, that movie is charming enough. It gets a pass. Okay, all right, that's fair. Right. Let's just. Charming. But before we get too sidetracked, let's get into our main topic. We are talking about brewing differences when your commander is or is not a part of your deck's win condition. I, I think that this is kind of like a subset or it's like kind of related to a conversation that we've had a couple of times on this podcast where we're talking about commander centric or commander agnostic decks. Like 
is the commander a main focus of your deck or is it not a huge part of the way that the deck is going to function and, and stuff like that and we've also talked about whether your commander is like the setup for the deck or if it is the like the, the engine of the deck or if it's the deck's payoff so like there's a lot of different ways to interpret this but dana how about i just go ahead and throw this topic to you when it comes to your commander is or is not a part of the way that your deck actually closes out the game what is the thing that immediately comes to your mind when you are brewing that deck and how does it make it feel different from other decks where that is not the case um so the first thing that comes to my mind when your commander is part of the win condition is you just have to devote a lot more resources in that deck to ensuring you can actually utilize that win condition um maybe it's more ramp so you can recast it multiple times maybe it's protection spells um to keep it safe maybe it's things like lightning greaves or swift foot boots to protect it once it's on the field but that for me is kind of that big difference i, I that when i do that initial brew if i know my commander is part of what it's going to take to win that game i immediately start slotting in things to enable that versus decks where my commander is not part of that win condition that's not something I worry about nearly as much. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I would probably echo Dana's sentiments here. Whether or not your commander is important to your actual winning of any said game, you probably want to devote a certain more amount of slots more or less, depending on how involved the commander is, into protecting it. That's going to be the biggest factor because if it's not around long enough to actually make an impact and do what you need it to do, whether it's my Kyler deck where I need it to be around for a few turns mm. because I need to, get, need to get plus and plus encounters on it, which then makes all my other humans bigger so I can go to combat and attack. Or if it's something that I need around just for one turn for a quick burst of, of whatever value it is, it really depends. That's going to help influence how many utility slots you need to protect. That's kind of the very first question you should be asking when you're trying to evaluate, is my commander vital to how I win or does it just supplement the strategy? And I think also like how integral your commander is to that strategy makes a difference. There are some decks that the commander can be part of your win condition or, or is a part of your win condition. Um, but you can maybe come up with a backup plan, like whether you have a victim in the deck or you have other things. Let's say you're playing some kind of an enchantress deck. Maybe your commander is what you're planning on putting your enchantments on, but like in a pinch, you can put them on something else. Mm. Um, on the other hand, let's say you're playing Kali of the Vast, always comes to mind. Um, if you don't have Kali as your win condition in that she's the reason you're going to play eight drops for free. <laughs> and if you don't have access to Kalia and you're holding a fistful of seven and eight drop angels and demons and dragons, that radically changes what you're going to have to do. And, and, and probably nothing else in that deck is going to enable you to do what you planned on doing. Yeah. Kali is a really tricky example, I'd say. Like in my mind, I think she kind of qualifies as like a the, more of the engine of the deck that allows the deck to win, but she herself won't be like like her on the field she's not going to commander damage people too often basically it's more often going to be you've got a bunch of 8-8 flying demons angels or, or dragons that are doing the rest of the work and kalia's importance might fall off later on in the game as you're able to just hard cast more and more of those or cheat them into play or something like that i have a similar confliction with my elegant deck which is the scry sphinx anytime you would scry instead you draw that is such a powerful engine for that deck and that is a very commander centric deck for sure because i need to have elegant in play for my you know my, my random scry three scry six scry five spells to actually draw me as many cards as i want them to and those 
those cards don't do a whole lot unless I have my commander in play. But Elegath is not usually part of the deck's win condition. He's just the most powerful engine that facilitates that win condition. Usually the way that I'm winning with that deck is after I've actually drawn all of those cards and I'm using an Atempsis to punch someone with a brain, basically, and win with the Exodia finish instead. So it's a very powerful engine, but there's definitely a distinction there. Matt, I really like the, the point that you brought up about Kyler because I had actually expected for you to bring up one of your Voltron decks, like your Valduk deck, but mm -hmm. just because, you know, commander damage seems like one of the most obvious ways in which your commander is the win condition of the deck. But that was not the first example that you brought up. You brought up Kyler, who pumps up all of your humans for each counter that is on Kyler. And yeah, that is a huge pump. It is not uncommon for you to get like plus 10, plus 10 from just your commander, which means you're putting a lot of eggs into one basket, even though you've got a lot of creatures in play, which I think is really interesting. It's a very different dynamic than I'd expected you'd bring up with. Well, and two, yes, commander damage often is the quickest way to win with a Voltron deck, but eventually any creature that you have with three or four equipments and making it unblockable somehow, hmm. they're going to get through eventually. That's what I think a lot of shift has been is you don't see maybe the, the, the Rafik of the many, everything all in on one commander because you have all these equipments, but Dana, even your equipment heavy decks, they're putting onto different creatures and it's not always going to be the same specific commander that you're going all in on. So mm. Voltron decks to me just have evolved to any creature will do because a lot of times the equipment are just so powerful these days that you don't need it to be specifically your commander because it's kind of the infect thing, like 10 infect, like nobody's ever doing just 10 infect. It's a triumph for the hordes and going for, for 30 on one person. It's kind of that way. I feel with Voltron decks these days too, because there's so much access to double strike and ways to double up your damage or whatever it might happen to be. So the longer a commander needs to be on the battlefield, Voltron decks, oftentimes you need your commander maybe for one combat step to take somebody out. But with some commanders, like my Kyler deck, the commander needs to be out for several turns, which means I need more protection on there for a longer amount of time for the commander to be relevant. Well, and there's even a lot of flex there. Rafik's a great example of that, actually, <clears throat> because in a Rafik deck, a lot of times you are counting on Rafik having double strikes. So maybe you're not running other pieces of double strike equipment because you're like, well, it's redundant then. I have it on Rafik. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you are leaning heavily into Exalted as well. So like your other bodies might be much weaker in that deck because you're just assuming they will be granting Rafik as Exalted since they're not going to be attacking as well. So like that's a commander where Voltron is, is, is very vulnerable to that. Rafik just that much more so because the way the commander is built encourages you to rely on that commander even more than in a lot of different kind of Voltron decks. Yeah, Matt, that's, that's actually really interesting for me to hear you say that about the, the relationship to Voltron, about like basically having a backup Voltron in the deck uh, to give a little bit of relief or like kind of a, a pressure valve maybe might be the way to say it for how much importance there is on the commander. I don't know if that's my experience with the Voltron decks that I've got. I feel like most of the time when it comes to me, the commander being the source of commander damage and only having to deal 21 damage instead of whatever my opponent's life total happens to be, I feel like I haven't moved as much as as maybe you have uh, to like finding other backup things that will carry all of the enchantments or all of the equipment or getting all of the buffs for whatever it is that I'm doing. So I, I'm kind of curious. I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, like you brought up Dana's uh, equipment deck, for example, and we have certainly seen that Dana will like animate one of his lands. Like I think he's got like Ink Moth Nexus in that deck and then Arden can just suit it up out of nowhere. And that's a really great target instead of having to always make it your, your Voltron stuff. And that is a really good example, but I, I personally struggle to come up with other examples, at least in my own decks, where that is the case. So I don't know. I'm curious to hear more about your your backup Voltrons a little bit. Well, that, that was definitely a plan when I built that deck. I, 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 number one, wanted to build it and not Boros Colors. 
um, so when I was looking at options in one of going with Azorius and, and building with Arden and Essior, um, that that was one of the things that I found attractive about those two particular commanders. Obviously, Arden is really useful for equipping equipment for free, but Essior coming down in turn two and immediately protecting itself for one with with the semi ward ability, um, and then it's going to protect Arden on turn three with that same ability, and then. It has evasion to start putting things on, so that's going to help me get through. But after several turns, uh, particularly because the deck is a sword deck, there's a pretty good chance I'm just going to have protection from whatever spells you're going to be trying to cast to stop Mm -hmm. whatever creature is suited up. So that's a a perfect example, like you said, of one where the first five turns of the game, SCR is important. After that, I can suit up any of those lands I have. I can suit up... Arden um, himself, if I need to, so very much so. The important importance of that particular Voltron commander completely falls off the table after like turn six or seven. Interesting, um, but but I do think that's a little bit true in in a lot of decks. For example, um, at some point the damage has been done. Like you know, I, my Talrand deck is built around making Drakes with Tower, and it's not that different from Matt's Valduk deck. But at some point in in that Talrand deck, when I have six or seven drakes out, do you really care about removing Talrand? You have bigger problems. <laughs> I have a, I have a handful of creatures out and like a gravitational shift in play and something else out, and you have a bunch of drakes swinging at you, each hitting for five or six damage or something. Removing Talrand at that point becomes pointless. So I think sometimes, even if your commander is a really important part of the deck winning the game or at least enabling your win condition, you can get to the point in the deck where the commander's already put those pieces in place and just removing it doesn't solve anything. And that's, I think, another example of it's a different different version of that, but where the commander's importance falls off as the game progresses. Hmm. Well, and Dana, I think there's a really good kind of uh, differentiation that needs to be made because your Voltron deck can go all in very easily because of how Arden is worded, where you get to move all your equipments on. Mm. So it doesn't really matter what the creature is. You just need a creature. Whereas my Valduk deck that Joy was talking about, mm. it very much is all in on one specific creature. And thankfully, it's in the command zone. But the backup plans are a little few and far between when it comes to, okay, if, if the Valduk plan doesn't work, if, if he gets killed two or three times, how am I going to win the games? And sure. so my Valduk deck... It, it requires a little bit more protection than your Arden SEOR deck because you just need a creature, but I need the specific one. So my commander deck, I would, or my Valduk deck, probably puts a little more premium on protecting that one that I need. Yes, there, there are backups, but those are also, I only have five other creatures in the deck and I may not always see one. So I want to make sure that the ones that I do get down, they're easily either easily protected or they're recursive or some way to make sure that even though Valdic plan A did not work out, plan B is still viable through regular combat damage mm-hmm. because the creature is sustainable in some other way. So the creatures that I'm picking, whereas like we said, Dana needs a creature, just a single body it can be a one, one token that he's able to make very scary, very quickly a, because I'm not skipping mana costs the way Dana's deck is, but also B the, the creatures are a little less durable sometimes. So I need to be a little pickier with those backup creatures that I'm putting in the deck. That, that is an interesting point though, Dana, about like 
the ways that a commander's importance will shift over game. I think that can be true of just about any strategy, really. Uh, like when I think of, for example, zombie tribal, like there are going to be the, the Scarab God is a great zombie tribal example of like that is usually the win condition of the deck because the Scarab God will make your opponents lose so much life as your zombie army grows and grows and grows. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, I have a Wilhelt zombie tribal deck instead. And Wilhelt is a lot more important at the beginning of the game where I'm like a little bit more flexible with being able to draw cards and it's really helping me set up my engine and it can also create additional tokens for me but as the game goes on i really just will health is not a part of that deck's win condition at all and having will health in play on turn 10 is not nearly as important as having him in play on turn four and that is the, the kind of thing where yeah this commander actually you know i care about it a lot at one stage of the game and not as much later mimeoplasm would be another very different example mimeoplasm i cannot usually play early but dang that is a deck that really cares a lot about having really good and lethal combinations from mimeoplasm so i have to set that up and the importance of Mimeoplasm is paramount by the time that we get around to turn seven or eight. So th that is an interesting thing to ask yourself, not just like, is the commander part of the win condition, but also when is that thing's timing the most important for the win condition to be able to land? One important difference too, I think that, or thing that makes a difference, I think too, is when I tend to build a deck, I tend to have an idea about what I want to do. And then I tend to look for a commander that will facilitate that in some way. Hmm. I, I don't know if most people brew that way. I think a lot of people look and see a commander and like, oh, I want to build that. And I think when you come at it from that angle, it just by default makes your deck much more reliant on the commander. Hmm. Like when when someone sees Muldrotha, they tend to be like, oh, I want to build a Muldrotha deck. And therefore, everything in that deck kind of hinges on that pin that is Muldrotha um, versus the way I tended to do it, where I think I want what concept has caught my interest. Okay, how can I make that happen? I said I want to build an equipment deck, so I figured out two pieces that will enable me to do that. And I think that way of looking at brewing just by default makes my decks tend to not rely on the commander as much as someone who's coming at it from the point of view of, I see this thing and I like it, and now I'm going to build the deck based on what it's suggesting I do. I mean, Dana literally just summed up the exact difference between our deck building strategies. Yeah. <laughs> Dana, Dana finds, okay, this is the thing I want to do. Let me find the commander to accommodate that. I find the commander, and I build the deck to accommodate that. Same. It, sure. It, it, yeah. It, but, for, but for me, it's also, I want to build something. Like, I don't get to do this in other formats. I want to build around this commander, and, and neither of us is wrong, necessarily, either. Yeah, like, for, like, no, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't want to come across to, to the viewers as I'm, I'm dissing on Dana. We'll diss on each other for other reasons, but <laughs> our motivations is definitely not one of those reasons. Like, it, it, It's just always fun for me uh, to, to see this commander, and, oh, my gosh, what can I do with this? Whereas, Dana, what can I do with this? And now I got to pick, find a commander to fit this into. So it's just, it's funny how you word, right. we're doing the exact same, just we're starting at different ends of the spectrum. Right. Yeah. It, it is of big importance here, I think, though, like to notice that, like, basically any strategy can be built with the commander as a very central part of the win condition or not. Uh, there, there are certain strategies, I would say, that do lend themselves more to one or the other. Like a Voltron deck, for example, with commander damage is going to be pretty commander-centric. That is kind of a given. Um, and I would probably even say that, like, usually a wheel deck, often like a Locust God or a Nekosar. I'm trying to say Nekosar instead of Nekosar because I know that you guys give me a hard time about my pronunciations on that one. Like, that tends to be a lot of the main uh, way that the game is going to be won is because of the payoff that the commander gives you from all of the wheels that you cast. And so the rest of the deck can just be about all those wheels. And then by contrast, like a, a tribal 
Rebel deck, for example, like I mentioned my Will Health earlier, the commander isn't often always a part of the, the win condition because a tribal deck is so synergistic that no one elf or zombie is necessarily more important than another elf or zombie. Or maybe Punisher decks would be another example of this. Like there are certain strategies that I think lend themselves to one or the other, but it really is just down to how you built it. I mentioned the Scarab God example earlier as that's a tribal deck that is different from the energy of a Wilhelm deck. Or if you went aristocrats, like Tesa Karlov is not necessarily commander-centric, I don't think. She amplifies what the deck is doing, but the deck can probably do it even if she's not there, versus like my Conrad deck is very aristocratsy, and it's pretty all-in on the commander as being the primary source of damage in that deck. So yeah, there's a lot of flexibility here, even within these big umbrellas, is basically what I what what the energy that I want to kind of put out there right now. I think that is an important thing for us all to note, is the flexibility there. So if you do want to have a concept, if Dana wants to build an equipment deck, there's still a lot of flexibility in how commander-centric he wants that win condition to be. So how much redundancy do you then bake in if your deck is more commander-centric in terms of win condition? Um, there are some commanders you can't necessarily bake in redundancy, I guess, but like, is there a point where it's too much? Is there a point Ooh. where you put in too much protection? Um, like, wh- How do you figure out what those boundaries are? Ooh. Well, and two, it, it, a good question to ask yourself is how easily is this effect replicated? If it's a Solvala yeah. Heart of the Wilds and you're just making a lot of a lot of mana with your commander, how easily can I make a lot of mana? Or if it's uh, a Voltron, how easily can I find a powerful creature to turn sideways? And sometimes those effects are very easily replicated, so you don't need to worry too much about protection. Yes, obviously the commander is the best version. But if, yeah, if you're playing a Taste of Karlov deck, like Joey mentioned, you're still doing those aristocrat things. Tasa Karlov is just making it a little more effective. Mm-hmm. And you can find other ways to make those things more effective, whether it's more copies of your Zulaport cutthroat effects or you're doing whatever else you might be doing. So that's a really big question is how easily can I find this same effect and put it in the 99 versus how desperate do I have to protect this one source of that effect that I need? Yeah, I, I think we've done a whole episode about like having backup plans and plan Bs and plan C and mm-hmm. how to n- navigate around those. And I think one of the main examples that we used in that episode was it might have been your Omnath deck, actually, Matt, because Landfall has so many different famous examples of like Avenger of Zendikars and Rampaging Baloths and Ovalwald Hydra even and New Multanis. And there are a lot of different ways that you can go. Kassig Wolf runs even like there are a lot of different cards that you can use in a Landfall deck to accumulate a lethal board state in one way or another. And that makes me unsure about whether, like, because I look at Omnath and I say, eh, you know, that seems like that's going to be a really big part of the win condition. And and in fact, I, I would wager that, like, there are a lot of people out there who could build Omnath as, like, probably the only landfall payoff in the entire deck if they wanted to really try and streamline it and go eggs all in one basket. But that is not the way that you went with it. You like having the other things like the Rampaging Balos that will also help out uh, in the event that Omnath gets to be 15 mana and you're just not in the mood to cast it anymore but you still want to make a whole bunch of tokens whenever you play lands which has happened yes yes yeah and so that is a a line that you have drawn and is it like was that a an intentional thing or did you just see cool card says landfall let's put it in was it a a thing based on feeling or was there a a a definite intentionality there is a a thing that i'm curious about well that deck specifically has gone through so many waves of dependency on omnath uh, and then swung back the other way to it's just a good creature in the command zone and then back to, okay, I'm going all in on Omnath. 
so it depends really on what kind of support cards you want to play. Landfall decks have so, like such a depth of options these days yeah. that you can play it however way you want, whether you want to... I, I mean, you could probably build three different Omnath Locus of Rage decks, honestly, and have them all be very, very different, whether you're trying to go deep on the token route and making all these tokens from your landfall triggers, or you want to make one thing hit really, really hard. You can do a lot of different things. And so it was kind of, I settled on this current iteration just because that ebb and flow back and forth. I want war storm surges. I want those types of where ancient treads mm -hmm. types of cards in the deck. And I want those to do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. So I've kind of settled in there, but you very easily could swing one way or the other. So it just really depends on what kind of style you want within that strategy. And that's, I think that's one reason that landfall is so popular because you can do so many different things within that one strategy or even with that one commander with that one strategy. Well, and I feel like the last times that I've played against your Omnath deck, the way that you like demolished the table was with a scapeshift into Valakut with an ancient green warden in play and a dryad of the Elysian Grove to make sure everything is a mountain. Yeah. And all of your Valakut triggers happen twice and you just you play a single scapeshift and then boom, everyone takes like 30 damage each. And it had nothing to do with the commander at all, but it was glorious. Yeah, yeah. Well, th that's a great point of comparison to the example I used with Rafiq earlier. Um, when we're talking about redundancy... There's two different kinds of redundancy. There's redundancy that doesn't stack or overlap, and there's redundancy that does. Mm -hmm. In the Rafiq case, you probably don't want to run a backup Fire Shrieker or a backup Duelist Heritage or something. Right. Um, as good as those cards are, they don't. They're they're dead in hand if Rafiq is out, which is your entire plan. If your deck is 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 working as intended, those cards don't do you any good. For, I mean, Duelist Heritage obviously is maybe a little bit better because you can use it on someone else's creatures, but like <laughs> for the most part, you don't want redundant double strike effects in that deck versus Matt's deck where it doesn't matter what he's doing. A landfall can trigger as many things as can be triggered by landfall as he has in play. That that um, Woodfall cr crashing Primus or Woodfall Balath of Zendikar, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that particular landfall monstrosity he happens to have out is. That's going to trigger at the same time that Valkut the Molting Pinnacle is going to trigger at the same time that Omnath is going to trigger. As many effects as you want to put in that deck and stack up are all going to work simultaneously. And I think that is, is the real difference. You have to make that determination about whether or not the, your backup plans will, will actually continue to work and make your deck improve as you play them or whether or not they're going to clog up your deck if things are going well. Yeah, the, the commander doesn't invalidate any cards that I could put in the deck, whereas <laughs> there are some decks, like you said, Rafika the Many, can invalidate certain amounts of cards that you would otherwise put into a Voltron-style deck. Um, that's a really good thing that I see a lot of folks kind of glom over sometimes, it feels, where they're putting cards in, well, it's good in this strategy, but is it good in this commander in that strategy? And that, mm -hmm. that's something that we've we've hinted at a few times on the episodes on episodes before, mm -hmm. but making sure that it's not working directly against or just directly overdone by your commander. Now, yes, mm -hmm. Duelist Heritage probably, I would maybe consider it in a Rafiq deck, not always, but man, I, I like giving other people's creatures double strike as a political sure, tool, yeah. but you are correct, Dana. That's probably not the first card you're going to reach for in that deck because yes, it's handy in a Voltron deck, but your commander specifically doesn't need it. And so mm -hmm. finding those redundant effects Yes, A, you want you make sure that you have that effect at all times, but also is this effect or is this an effect that you only want once and only once? 
Yeah, no, th there's a bunch of examples of that too. And I love the way that you said within, <laughs> like, this is a thing I think we've mentioned before a couple of times on the show where like we as players will be like, oh, this card is good and might assume that that means it's good everywhere. But no, it, it context is absolutely required. There's a reason that Tatiova decks don't play Harmonize. They don't need them. There's a reason that, Dana, I don't think your Arden deck is playing Sigarda's uh, favor right now, is it? It is not. Which would yeah. allow you to free attach equipment. Your commander's already doing that so well that that is a redundancy that is uh, not effective. It is, you have eliminated the need for those things so that is a great distinction matt i really love that that is a huge point to to bring in that context is what makes cards good not just cards being good in and of themselves in a vacuum yeah to to, to talk about that arden and scr deck just for a moment is effective as scr is in that deck if there were like three different variants on scr i wouldn't be running them mm. because they wouldn't do my deck any good as a backup plan if i already had an scr out versus the creature lands I have in the deck, the Blink Moth Nexus, the Ink Moth Nexus, the Fairy Conclave, if I do have my commander out and suited up, they're still lands. They still do something in addition to what they are as my backup plan versus like you talked about how I'm not running Sigarda's Aid as a backup to um, Arden in that deck because it doesn't do me any good for the most part if I have Arden out who's relatively effectively costed so it's pretty easy to recast him multiple times mm. so so i don't have backup plans there in or, or at least nearly as many as i do backup plans for for seor in the form of lands this is this is complicated stuff like there and i think that each yeah. individual brewer will draw a line in a different place for each of their decks even if they were to build like matt as you mentioned you could easily build three different types of omnath decks i think each one of us has a different landfall take and we've all had different takes on that and our relationship to the wind conditions there does affect a lot of the stuff there and the relationship to a backup plan is huge because there are some backup plans that you're like mm, i might need it and then there are some backup backup plans where you're just like hey, this is <laughs> just i just do not need this at all because the commander's already giving me enough of that reliably and, and stuff like that Th there are a few other questions on this topic that i do want us to get to but before we get to those I'm stealing back my right for the segue and to challenge the stats. And I think that we should do that right now. And I don't want you guys to steal the segue from me. So I'm going to do it. We're going to go, we're going to take a break and go to challenge the stats. And we're going to be happy about it. Is that all right? Oh, if we have to be happy about it, then I, I guess we can. You can put your sadness on the stack, but I have counterspell backup. <laughs> Fair. All right, yeah, let's do it. There's so much data on EDA track, but we don't always agree with that. Sometimes I think the cards see too much or too little play. So let's challenge those stats. And Matt, how about you start us off this week? So my challenge this week, actually, I dropped the name of the commander a little bit earlier. It's for Salvala, Heart of the Stampede decks. And one of my favorite new cards from this Dominary United set that Dana actually beat me to the punch and talking about on social media is Relic of Legends. So this card actually, I think, is going to be overplayed with where it's trending. So I, I, I hate challenging a card as it's becoming opened in packs, but I want to make sure we're, we're catching these trends at an appropriate time. So Slavala Heart of the Wilds is one green green for a 2-3 elf scout that says whenever another creature enters the battlefield, its controller may draw a card if its power is greater than each other creature's power. And then the important ability here is pay a green and tap it to add X man of any combination of colors where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. So Relic of Legends is an amazing, amazing new card from Dominary United. It's three mana for an artifact that taps for one mana of any color. But also you can tap an untapped legendary creature you control to add one mana of any color. Now that ability is fantastic and oftentimes people have legendary creatures just kind of hanging out in their decks or on the battlefield ready to be tapped for mana with this card. But Salvala Heart of the Wilds is actually a deck that I do not believe needs it. 
Uh, they're currently in the 536 decks that have been updated since Dominaria United went up on EDH rec. People have already been putting Relic of Legends in Sylvala decks. Now, Sylvala itself taps for mana. You don't need to tap Sylvala to Relic of Legends for mana. But if you look at the typical deck, all the creatures either already are not legendary or they have tap abilities that you want to be activating already. Um, so it's something that just you're not going to have an excess of legendary specific creatures laying around in your Sylvala deck. You're either going to be attacking with them because they're massive creatures like Grothama the All Devouring or they're, they're mana dorks. You want to make sure when you're looking at all of these creatures and all these decks that you're putting Relic of Legends in, how many legends do you have laying around that, that don't need to be attacked? They don't already are doing anything. And that's something very important you need to be answering for yourself. I personally am going to put Relic of Legends in a ton of my own decks. But if you have a Silvala Heart of the Wilds deck, you probably do not want to be putting it in there. There's just other better things you can be doing with that slot. Yeah, Matt, I love Relic of Legends. It's a fantastic card. Um, I, I do think uh, I tend to agree in a deck that's already making a massive amount of mana. It's probably relatively redundant, particularly when you're also in a, a deck that has access to land ramp that's much more difficult to interact with. So while I tend to I tend to run it in a whole bunch of decks, I don't think I want to run it in Savala either. That's just a really good card in general, too. Like it, It's fantastic. <laughs> like I feel like most people will see like, oh, this should go into Legends decks, like with a lot of legendary creatures, but it's just a good tap outlet for like yeah. a, a, a whole bunch of different things. <laughs> like I really like this card a whole lot, but if your committer's already making mana, already doing the tapping, I feel like this is, in my brain, this is more of a tap outlet kind of card than it is like necessarily a Legend-specific or a mana-producing card, but I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Mm -hmm. Also, Matt, real quick. Um, actually, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, address both you and Dana about this because Dana had his very fun wild crusher of Avenger of the Wild Primus of Zendikar moment. And then you also accidentally pronounce it Savala Heart of the Stampedes. So you know what? Y'all have given me some grief about my <laughs> Savala has her stampedes, though. It's an actual card. I wasn't making up cards. I was referring to other cards. <laughs> he was talking about what is in her heart. He was portmanteauing yes. on accident. Who are we? Who are we to question? I'm, ju I'm just saying, I get some grief about my, my pronunciations on this podcast sometimes, but... I'm 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 a hold up a mirror to you guys every so often. Anyway, all right, Nikusar, move on. All right, you know what? I, I better uh, I better just take this moment to move to my own challenge now, and uh, I'm going to be challenging a card for Tasha the Witch Queen decks, specifically a card that I also think is getting a little overplayed here. So Tasha the Witch Queen is a, a really fun Demir Planeswalker from Baldur's Gate who makes you demons every time you cast a spell that doesn't belong to you, and her abilities will help you gather more and more of those spells as well. Um, and especially you like to fill up the graveyard and cast a lot of your opponent's stuff from the graveyard. There are cards like Memory Plunder, for example, that help out with this. But there are also some cards that are very deceptive in the ways that they don't actually help out with this. Specifically, I'm looking at the card Flawless Forgery, which so far appears in about 16-17% of Tasha decks. This is a little bit distinct from Memory Plunder type of cards. Memory Plunder will actually cast an instant or sorcery directly from your opponent's graveyard. So that will trigger Tasha's ability to give you those 3-3 demons. Flawless Forgery, however, has a slightly different wording. And there are a couple of cards like this, like Spell Twine as well. They exile the instant or sorcery card from the opponent's graveyard. And then you copy that spell and you can cast the copy. But you're casting a copy there. You're not casting your opponent's spell. You're not casting a spell that doesn't belong to you. You're just casting a copy. So you will not get any demons when you're casting a spell like Flawless Forgery or Spell Twine. So be very, very attentive about the wording on those spells. It's pretty important for a commander like Tasha. So 
16% of the 2,000 Tasha decks playing Flawless Forgery, move on to a different spell instead. Fill up those graveyards, find other stuff to steal instead of this one, and you'll get a lot more demons, a lot more bang for your buck. Okay, Dana, all you. Uh, I want to talk about um, a card that I think should see more play for sure, Echoing Truth. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, I have a challenge. For, this for, week. for reference, <laughs> listeners, Dana has challenged that card three times, repeating himself <laughs> multiple times, in addition to a listener submitted challenge of stats, which that listener went to patreon.com slash EDHRECCAST <laughs> to submit a challenge of stats. And that's and that right there is the truth, the echoing truth, <laughs> the echoing truth. Yes. So, so our suggestion this week does come from a Patreon supporter, um, Cold Side in our Discord. Uh, his challenge stats pick this week is for Terrain Generator. It's a colorless land that can go into any deck, and it's currently showing up in fifteen thousand decks, which is just one percent of the possible decks on EDH Rec. Um, decks that can draw lots of cards and tend to have mana to spare, like control decks, would benefit greatly from it because it has the ability to pay two and tap it. So basically three mana to put a basic land from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. He runs it in Kawain and it lets him play two lands a turn after he gets it down very frequently. Mm. Uh, I have some experience with this card. I run it in my Talrand Sky Summoner deck. Um, there's, I think, almost 30 instant spells in that deck. Um, I oftentimes try to spread them around and there's also a handful of, you know, counter spells in there as well. And there are enough times with that card where I just don't have a, I, I keep counter magic up in case I need to protect my commander. That's an important part of that deck's win condition <laughs> and nobody tries to remove it. So at the end of the turn, I will play a land with that terrain generator and untap everything and be good to go again. I don't run it everywhere. Um, I only have it, I think two of my 14 decks. But in the decks where you are playing that particular play style, particularly if you can afford to have utility lands because you're you know playing in a one or two color deck, it is a very, very good card. And I do agree it should see more play. I am all on board with that. That is really cool. You know, Dana, there's something that you just mentioned there that I think might segue us back into our topic here, where you mentioned that one of your commanders there is an important part of your deck's win condition. And I think that actually is one of the distinctions that maybe we need to like fully hone in on about this sure. episode. About like, it, and, and again, this, I think this is tough to recognize, but like, is the commander a part of the win condition or is your commander the win condition like i mentioned elegith earlier as an example of like that that's the engine of the deck that's drawing me so many so many tons of cards but like i wouldn't in my head normally associate that that is the win condition of the deck but at the same time it can be if i want it to be once i've drawn all of those cards i can attach an imperial plate to it i get a huge buff for it and then that can commander damage for a win or if i have a psychosis crawler in play the fact that i have elegant in play turning all my scries into draws means that psychosis crawler is now actually lethal and without elegant in play that would not work as well but i still would be very hesitant to call elegant like the payoff or like the uh the win condition, I guess it is. It can be a strong part of that, but it is a distinct form there. And I guess that's just an important distinction for us to like finally hone in on as we move into the second half of this episode. I feel like there are plenty of examples of this where the commander is deceptive. It's difficult to find out, wait, is this actually the thing that's winning me the game? Or is this just a very commander centric part that isn't actually the way that the game will end? Sure. So, well, and here's a good example of that. Um, so I, I have a jury master of the review deck that's, that's built around sacrificing treasures to make jury ginormous and then having jury die and deal damage to a person, hopefully lethal damage. Um, and then I can recast jury and hopefully do that all again. 
but that's like that is jury's a win condition of that deck. And that's not something that really is replicatable. There's not other things I can run as a backup plan that I can put counters on in those colors necessarily by sacrificing treasures that then deal damage when they just die. <laughs> I, I could run a bunch of fling effects or something, but like that's a whole different deal than just having it all baked into that one creature. Jury is the win condition versus, say, Talran that I just mentioned, where Talran being out while I cast instant and sorcery spells makes Drakes that are the win condition, I guess. And it's important to have Talran in play to get to that point. But like I mentioned earlier, if Talran goes away at a certain point in the game, that becomes kind of irrelevant. Additionally, there's things in the deck, uh, you know, cards like Docent of Perfection or Murmuring Mystic mm. or Whispering Wizard, all creatures that do a very similar thing. When I cast a instant or sorcery or a non-creature spell in the case of Whispering Wizard, that then will also make me some kind of a small evasive flying token creature. So while they're not necessarily backup plans and that they stack with Talrand, there are situations where like I've had Talrand killed four or five times in a game because I just didn't draw counter magic or didn't draw protection. Hmm. And I was able to land that docent and still do the same exact thing for the most part because they're just enabling the win condition. I think it's much easier to find a backup plan for something that's in your command zone that's an engine to enable the win condition than it is to find a backup for the actual card being the win condition, like in the case of your Corvald deck, Joey, or in my jury deck. Corvald? I don't have a Corvald deck. Sorry, sorry uh, Sir Conrad. Conrad sorry. deck. There we go. Also, we go. also a very, very mean one, though. <laughs> yeah. And then the, there's always some fun middle ground, too. I know I, I immediately think of my Ukeem and Kazar deck when, when we're talking about, is this the way that it wins? Or is it part of how it wins? Or is it just a, a vessel? Mm. Uh, plus one, plus one counters, especially with how many ways there are to recycle those counters these days, is really easy to make any given creature lethal. Now, in my Ukima and Kazer deck, the Ukima being unblockable, having that leaves the battlefield ability, it makes it a very, very juicy target, <laughs> but I don't have to specifically win with Ukima in order for that deck to win. And so, yes, in early stages, it's a very easy target, but as the game progresses, it turns into one of those types of things that Dana's decks often do where the commander is there as an option, but doesn't have to be the option. A, a big master biomancer is going to make a whole army very, very powerful. So it doesn't need to be specifically the, the cards that are in my command zone, but it does make it easier just because I have that ready access to that in my specific deck. Honestly, Matt, this is actually an experience that resonates really hard with me too, because you've got your plus one counter deck in similar colors to my uh, Rayhan and Ishai deck, mm -hmm. which collects a bunch of counters. And then I love to move those counters around. And honestly, like that is a deck where I really struggle with how commander centric do I make this deck? Is this deck more commander centric than I thought? And I feel like this is actually a great example of how difficult it can be to notice when you've accidentally overcompensated. Like if you are putting a bunch of like extra protection, extra counter spells, more of the Swift of Bootsy types of cards into your deck to protect your commanders existing when they're not actually as integral to the end of the game to your deck's win condition, I think that can actually like be hard to spot because those are good cards. Heroic interventions, Deferi's protections, counter spells. Those are good cards to protect what's yours. They're never going to be bad necessarily. But I did notice, and it took me I think years to notice this, but over time in my plus one counter deck, I had put a lot more focus on 
Ishai, for instance, which was gaining so many plus one counters at a good rate and could commander damage my opponents out. But the point of that deck was actually to be full of a bunch of pinatas. I would move those counters onto an Alenda in response to like a Wrath effect or a Destroy effect, so that then I would be left over with a bunch of tokens if my plus one counters were ever compromised in some way. And yeah, I don't know. It, just, it took forever for me to realize, oh, I actually don't need as many of the counterspell type of things to protect the commander because Rayhan's already doing the work of a plan B. So I don't need all of these other plan B and plan C type of cards in my deck. A single Mana Gorger Hydra can actually all on its own take over a game or a single Colonian Hydra doubling counters, even just its own counters every turn. That can all on its own win a game. Why am I building this deck to be so commander focused? And I think maybe it has to do with the fact that I always will view those cards like the heroic interventions and the counter spells and protecting the commander as being super important to a deck, but maybe they're not always. It's just really hard to recognize when you've overcompensated on a protection package, for example. I think that's a very difficult thing to discover. And that's just something that I think folks often have, and we've talked about it several times, Joey, you specifically about how other people view your decks. How integral do you think your commander is versus how scary do other people think the commander is for that deck? Yeah. Because, yeah. Joey, you, you've talked about how, oh, well, Conrad's not my most powerful deck. Oh, no, it is. Don't I, you worry. Don't. <laughs> it, it is. But but also for your Rayon and Ishai deck, Ishai, yes, gets a ton of counters, but also Forgotten Ancient does a very good impression of that. <laughs> so there's, it's, yeah, it's funny that just... When the, the more that we play decks, the more we're able to kind of realize and sometimes playing around with how important is this commander to my deck? Let me let me try to play a whole game and win without casting my commander. Mm. That's something sometimes a challenge to kind of gauge how important that commander is for your deck and just where it is in its its current setup. I like that. I like that. To, to, to stand up in defense of my Conrad thing, I know that the, that card is ridiculous, <laughs> but I just want to say that is definitely not my most consistent deck with the power output. I like. I have other decks that I feel like are more reliably going to create a position against all odds, whereas Conrad, he does have some foibles. That that boy can absolutely be tripped up, and it can be easy to stop him if he gets stopped. He gets stopped completely. That's that was the distinction in my head. But like, yes, other people's viewpoints is a much more informative thing than just me gauging my own stuff. Like, it is a very good bridge to cross to see where you feel with your commanders versus where other people feel with the commanders. So don't throw me completely under the bus, Mister Morgan. Well, I, I do think it's important thing to note too that just because a commander is your win condition doesn't mean it's a win condition immediately. Mm -hmm. Like Joey, you can you, you can play Sir Conrad. And I can look at the table and be like, I know Sir Conrad is required for this deck to win, and I know it's going to deal a significant amount of damage over the course of five turns, but that other thing right there that that person played <laughs> is going to kill me next turn. And like, just because that that is a problem and is an important part of your deck doesn't mean it's necessarily the primary win condition. And again, let's go back to Rafik. That's the problem with Rafik. Rafik doesn't give you the, the opportunity to point at something else and go, okay, I will deal with Sir Conrad in three turns because I have to solve this other problem. Now, Rafik is the problem you have to solve now mm -hmm. because you don't know if next turn when it swings out, are you just going to blow up and die? So that's also kind of one of those things where like I would bet something like Sir Conrad, and, and this is something I found with Jury as well, um, they can, despite being the focal point of the deck, they can afford to sit there unprotected sometimes because people only have access to so many answers and so much removal and <laughs> plenty often there's going to be a problem that has to be addressed right now. And those are not oftentimes what that, that today problem is. That's a problem for next turn, for next turn Dana to deal with. And that's absolutely a situation I've come across with and against several decks that we've all talked about here. Uh, my Kyler Sigardian Emissary deck, yes, 
Kyler gets big enough to eventually kill you, but it needs to sit around for a few turns. Whereas Champion of Lamholt is already making things very hard for people to block. So that that's taking the attention off the commander at least immediately. That has happened all the time. You know, we'll, we'll see these things that, that Joey's doing and okay, he's getting ready to do something scary, but really we, we have to get rid of that enabler. Otherwise it's just going to enable things to just reset again. Or right. Dana, your recce history Kamigawa deck. We have laughed on stream over time and time again, how quickly that deck rebuilds because you're just able to redeploy so, so very quickly. And so yes, Recky's going to do some scary things, but has it already done the damage or is it not going to do the damage for a couple more turns? That's a right. very important gameplay decision. I think players could get a little more skilled at myself, most certainly included. Yeah, like the, the thing that is making the tokens might not be as important to get rid of right now as the doubling season that would amplify that to more lethal status. Mm -hmm. The the sacrifice outlet, like those are famous things that should be one of your first targets for removal, right? Your Phyrexian altars and all of them. Like that might be the thing that you need to get rid of on a, an aristocrat's player's board before you get rid of their Conrad because them actually being able to sacrifice stuff is the real thing that's that's going to hurt the most right now, not just the thing that does the damage. So yeah, good distinction. I once heard someone refer to that as a smothering tithe problem versus a dioxide extortionist problem. Sure. Those are two different kind of problems. The dioxide extortionist problem is already, the problem has already occurred. The smothering tithe problem is a problem that will continue to occur. And you need to respond to those things in different ways. Yeah, I really like that a lot. Now, on, on the subject of removal, I have one, I, I guess, final question for you guys here. Specifically, as we talk about some of these like super powerhouse cards. And definitely we've noticed a trend lately where Watsi makes some super powerhouse commanders as well. That kind of will be both engine and payoff, for example. Or there will be such a powerful engine that it is like really, really scary. And you can build the entire deck all around them. Is this a trend that you guys have noticed affecting your brewing, not just if you are building one of those commanders, but when you know the rest of the world and the rest of the players at the table that you're going to sit at, if, if you think that they will have some of those commanders, like if you are building around one of those decks and the, the, the power of the commander, will that affect, you know, if you've got a superpower commander, are you more inclined to play more protection because you know it's so good? Or is this uh, a thing that maybe encourages you, for example, to run more removal of different types of removal because you know that other commanders out there might be trending towards uh, being really big engines? Is this all made up in my head? I don't know. Take it away, you guys, if there's any any feeling that you've got about that. Um, speaking for myself personally, I, I just don't tend to build new commanders for very often. Or if I <laughs> right, do, this was a false question to ask you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> if, if I do, I'm looking to. I'm not picking those ones. Um, nothing against that. Again, to, to be clear, it's just not what provides me with satisfaction when I play. Um, I will say this though: I, I have in recent years founding myself found myself running more dark steel mutation or canvas transformation kind of effects oh. that aren't necessarily just one-off removals. They are removal spells that kind of linger. <laughs> yeah, so so, so there, it's not just like, oh, okay, I sourced the Paul Charger commander and it's going to be back out next turn doing the same thing again. Um, so I have found myself doing a little bit more of that, finding ways to remove particularly problem game pieces from the board for more than just one or two turns. Mm. Um, that's really the big change I think I've made. Yeah, I, I would agree with Dana's point. It, lingering 
answers that I, I kind of like to refer to them as things that keep the keep the bad thing from coming back over and over again or or coming mm-hmm. um, being able to be replayed. Now sometimes there are ways around it if you're playing an aristocrats deck. Mm-hmm. Chances are you don't care about a dark steel mutation, but that is a very, very good way to address problem commanders. It's not fun, but stuff like Dranith Magistrate, if that's the type of game that your playgroups are into, then absolutely that's a that's a fantastic resource. Maybe not great for more casual circles, but <laughs> there are, it just really depends on, on how cutthroat your play group is. That's kind of the big thing. Mm. Uh, and if there is something that maybe you're warping your decks around to, that's kind of a, a non gameplay type of issue that you probably want to take care of with rule zero conversations. But yes, uh, finding ways to address things in, in a more permanent way by with other permanents um, is a fantastic answer. I also have found myself just kind of circling back to more and more. I'm I'm really into that. Like those are yeah. There's a lot of different types of uh, removal to explore there. So it isn't just about necessarily the density, but also like having a varied version of them. Is yeah. That's that's a, a really good thing. That I think maybe I'm already doing. Like I play lignifies and things like that in my decks, but I don't know if I had like, I had consciously realized that that was the reason why I was doing that. I do feel like I have shifted to playing a few more pinpoint removal spells over time, but. So there's been a conversation in the EDH community about like the format is picking up speed and therefore people are playing more pinpoint removal. And that's something that I haven't been quite as certain about myself, but I have certainly noticed that I tend to play more of those low mana cost and instant speed removal spells than I used to because of how bonkers some of the commanders out there have been able to be you know every time that yeah i don't know when new zayatora comes out and i'm just like this has a lot of text on it i feel like i'm just afraid of this when toxrel comes out and i'm just like this has a lot of text on it i think i'm afraid of this i don't want to give that commander the chance to to do stuff so those those pinpoint things feel like they're becoming more valuable to me not even for speed reasons but just because i i feel like some of these powerhouse commanders out there need to be kept in check somehow and maybe i don't have as many turns as i think i do against them so uh, it's interesting to see those. It it does feel like we've all got our our different answers about that. And I think that's the only way that it can be done is with, as you mentioned, different types of answers. So I'm, I'm, I'm way into that, even though it wasn't the answer I expected. I really love it. Yeah. And I wonder how much webcam EDH changed some of that too, where you just felt like at least I I found myself running a few less board wipes as well, because I was playing on, on a spell table a lot. And I found myself like, I just don't want to reset this game. I don't want to start things over right now. (laughs) And everyone has to shuffle up and deal with it. Like, it's just for some reason it's a different vibe than it is when you're playing in person so that that was maybe some of that as well i switched a little more pinpoint removal as as a result of playing a lot more online than than maybe i used to in person well i would say i i prepare because unlike dana i'm also building those new commanders um <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping up with the times when it comes to oh this new commander is very powerful well great i you have a commander from six months ago i have a commander from three months ago. So uh, <laughs> being able to m- kind of go step for step with a lot of folks, I w- it's kind of a rising tides raises all ships type of thing. Um, new cards are coming out and I have access to them as well. So just by keeping up with the decks, which I'm not always the greatest at, but then uh, being able to pick up a card here and there, um, the, the power levels are never really getting too far apart. But also if one person's decks are getting kind of pulling away from the rest of the pack, that again, that kind of becomes a rule zero conversation. So mm. now that especially the paper events are coming back in, people are going to uh, magic fests and all those different things, being able to be clear and concise about what kind of games you're looking for, making sure you're not misleading people a little bit on the power levels of your decks. Um, maybe you are playing one of the more powerful commanders like, okay, but I'm also doing the specific thing 
and, and it's not actually going to be that powerful. And if you do have that kind of deck, make sure that your deck actually follows those plans. Don't, don't mislead people, especially intentionally. Uh, have those rule zero conversations. Find games with people that, okay, there's, there's a Beantown Bullies deck and we're kind of suspicious about it. Uh, but we, we have that pregame conversation so we know what to expect from that game. So we're kind of addressing it. So it's not an actual problem because we're, we're, fixing the problem before it actually happens to be one. Oh, Matt, you don't want to get levelered by a Beamtown Bullies deck and lose your entire I would library love, with a single swoop? <laughs> I, I would love not to do that. If we're going to have fun, let's have fun. If we're going to try to beat each other's brains in, let's let's <laughs> come to an agreement beforehand. So yes, if the if the powerful commanders are hitting the table, I'm also playing my powerful commander decks. Okay. Uh, that's just, yeah. that's that's my biggest way of addressing the, the big surge in power levels, I guess, on commanders is I'm also playing powerful decks okay yeah no i'm i'm way into that and dana um i'm glad that you still managed to build powerful decks even though you are still uh stuck back in the ye old days of 2014 building commanders from all that long ago like <laughs> don't know oh, you make me feel so old now with the ye old days ye old of 2014 <laughs> <laughs> and that's old with the e at the end too so you know it's really antiquated even <laughs> that's that's the the time back when they had those um Woodfall crusher of the primus of faller of Zendikar or whatever Dana called exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah, this was really we're, interesting. We're, we're just making things up. We need to wrap this. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, no, this is this is very interesting. I think there's still a lot more that could be discovered about this, but it, it is a difficult lens to apply to a deck and to notice the patterns that you might have. When a deck is commander-centric or a little commander-agnostic, when your deck is very focused on that, that is one lens to use. And it's a very important one that we've discussed a lot on this show, but it's also very important to see as a subset of that, is your commander the way the deck wins or is it the enabler for the way that the deck wins? And how does that affect the number of backup plans that you run in the deck and things like that? There's a lot to explore, and that's going to be an individual line that we each draw for ourselves. So I hope, listeners, that this has been an an informative uh, discussion for you. And we also want to hear from you. Like, where do you draw these lines in your own decks? It is very, very interesting for sure. But yes, let's call this episode to a close for now. So Matt, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you, bud? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast, where we have guests on every single week. And it is always a super fun time. So make sure you tune in for all of that as well. And Dana, how about you? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRATCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRATCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRATCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>